Rockies. So we go to the scripture reading this morning. The question that I have for all of us is what seizes, seizes our children? We don't often preach on this scripture because it's an unusual story. And it's a story where two words are used, epileptic and demon-possessed. But that's the question I want in your head today. What seizes our children, as Linda reads? Today's reading is Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. When they came to the crowd, a man said, came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have the the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Holy wisdom, holy word. Well, once again, I want to say Happy Mother's Day. It's good to have you all here on this day. And remind us that last year, remember what we did on Mother's Day last year? Oh, I presented you a list. And it was... A list of Great Britain's cotton wool generation hopes for their children and their recommendation throughout Great Britain of what every child needs to be able to accomplish before the age of 12 and a half. And I want to make those lists available again. And then I added, just because 50 wasn't enough, 25 more of my hopes for what we can do for children and what we do as families in the church. And 75 things, and many of you uh, covenanted that you were going to try and accomplish these things in the year and that I was going to come back a year later and ask you how you did. Well, now that I know you've all forgotten that that was the message that (laughs) is I just wanted to remind you that we had committed to that a year ago. And I'll make the list available again because it's really about health and being outdoors and doing things together as families. And there's a reason I want to I, I begin with that this morning. Before we get there, I, I, I want to talk about my mom. And again, as I said earlier, I, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that part of my mom's history that is so, so difficult to, to hear. But just for you to know, she came out of a, an exceptionally abusive home. And, ex- and more abusive than anything that I have ever heard in not only my work before being a pastor, but even my work as a pastor. And chose, chose to not continue the cycle of abuse. And I will tell you today, not only did she not continue it, what you're going to hear today 
is how she chose to live her life in ways that continue to be very, very powerful for me. And the sharing of these stories, I think, as you will hear, helps us define our role in the church. My mom came out of Oklahoma, and she, after high school, went to college and got her teaching degree and was certified to teach. And I think it was, in that time, I don't know that they singled out specific, you know, elementary school, junior high, or high school, but she got her teaching degree. But almost immediately after that, what she was able to receive was just an incredible gift. One of the great names in the church, and particularly in United Methodist Church or in the Methodist Church, was Georgia Harkness. And Georgia had a relationship with Garrett the- Evangelical Theological Seminary um, on the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And annually, they would choose women who they saw the potential for being life-changing women in the lives of churches. Women were not ordained in this area, although there were women who were serving in ministry. And my mom was selected as one of those recipients of the Georgia Harkness Scholarship in Evanston at, at Garrett. She chose to take that on. Many of you remember, particularly in this service, remember my mom. She, she is a very quiet, um, kind of behind-the-scenes person. You'll hear more about that in a minute. So she went to Garrett and within a year, and she began studying theology, and within a year, um, she met this handsome, thin, dark-haired, dark-eyed guy, and they fell in love. Okay, he wooed her a lot. His name was Paul, Paul Beeman, and again, they fell in love, and as was the custom, once they got married... Um, Within a year, they had their first child, and that child was born in 1953. Then two years later, they had their second child. Almost exactly two years later, he was born on May 7th in 1955. He's now 59. (laughs) And I don't want to hear a word from any of you that are older than 59. Not a word. And then about a year and a half later, they had their third child, their only daughter, and she was born in 1957. At that point, my mom made a decision, a choice, and that's the first word of the seven. She made a decision. She made her choice that her ministry was going to be dedicated to her three children. And in that choice, she gave up that potential future with the Georgia Harkness Scholarship And yes, that opened the door for other women to receive that scholarship. But she made that difficult choice in that era to to give that up and dedicate her lives to her children. Her children became her life. Now, her husband, after graduating from seminary, I mean, he began his work at Chicago Temple uh, in Chicago well before his graduation. But upon a graduation, he immediately got a call to move to upstate New York to this tiny little town named Euclid, where he would serve not one, but two churches. Both these churches were in phenomenal conflict with each other, and he was brought in to kind of heal some of that conflict and rebuild them and make some decisions about how they were going to move into their future. 
Now, I only share that because you hear that story a lot, but seldom do you hear what that does to a family. And I want you to imagine, as he's going through all these conflictual situations, what that would do to a marriage and the life of three children. But mom had made the decision, and she continued to be the rock of that family. Three years, three years later, he got a call to move to Aberdeen, South Dakota. I've still tried to figure that one out, but... And so we moved three years later to Aberdeen, South Dakota. What I failed to mention is that our average stay in any city throughout his career was three and a half years. We moved, on average, every three and a half years. So guess what? We were in Aberdeen for two years. Two years. Then he got a call to become the director of public relations in this little tiny burb on the West Coast called Seattle. And he decided to take that on. And so two years later, uprooted, moved to Magnolia Hill in Seattle. We were there for three years. And promptly then moved to this smaller little burb on the West Coast called Bellevue. And he took over a church that was being run basically at that point by the John Birch Society. And the bishop said to him, you need to either turn this around or shut it down. I'll tell you why I'm mentioning all that. This isn't about my dad. So I just want you to imagine in the midst of that conflictual situation. Oh, and by the way, in Seattle, when we moved here, again, director of public relations, he was gone all the time. Bellevue, gone all the time. Dealing with conflict all the time. All the time. Four years later, he gets a call to move to Spokane as a superintendent. You want to talk being gone all the time. We hardly ever saw him. And it was one of the reasons that I fought going into ministry tooth and nail. And maybe you don't know this. Ministry is hard. Ministry deals with all kinds of personalities. But I think it's harder on the families than it is on the ministers themselves. It was my mom. It was my mom who was there throughout every one of those transitions. And it was my mom, and here's the second word, who developed the traditions in our family and said to my father, who, as you know, was somewhat overt often and could say no fairly readily, never said no to my mom. You don't say no to my mom. And she said, Paul, you will be, and I can give you the tone. Dorothy recognizes this tone really well. Paul! You will be at home every Saturday night, and here's what we're going to do. Every Saturday night, we're going to gather as a family. Every Saturday night, we're going to watch... We're going to watch Bonanza. And every Saturday night, we're going to cook hot dogs over the fireplace, and we're going to have marshmallows because I love to camp, and we live in the Northwest. So, and we can do it indoors. But then his job was done, but hers continued because every Saturday night, 52 weeks a year, I remember it as though it was yesterday. The three of us climbed up the stairs at this little house on Magnolia Hill, up into my parents' bedroom. And we climbed on top of that bed that just felt huge. It was probably a double bed. 
onto the beautiful chenille bedspread and I can still feel the bumps. And I can still absolutely describe for you the pattern of that bedspread. And we would gently crawl under those covers in that bedspread. And then finally mom would come in and we were so excited because we never knew which book she was going to read from. But she would come in and she would nestle between the three of us and she would open the book and that's when she would teach and preach. Answer her call to ministry as though that book represented the most important sermon of our lives every single week. I cherish, I cherish those days. Every week. My mom also was there all the time. Always there for us. My mom struggled partly because of the abuse I believe today with some physical ailments that have plagued her her whole life. Then she had a fourth child late in life. And I I will tell you honestly, it ravaged her body to be pregnant at that age with those kinds of physical ailments. And she has never recovered from that. And yet we'll look at Dave, my youngest brother, and say what a treasure that was. And every single moment of that pregnancy, including the birth, was worth it to have him. To have him. Mom was the one that was always there for us in those really tumultuous days of junior high, right over here at Highland Junior High. In those times where we struggled, and I described last week that day where I I just so badly wanted to go out with Donna Conine. I had no idea what going out meant. We were younger in junior high then than the junior highers are today. And when I got that torn up love letter that I'd given to Donna, guess who I took it to? I took it to my mom. And she consoled me and said, there'll come a day where a girl will recognize the beauty that is Brad. And then in the move to Spokane, which was a tough transition for all of us, mom was there during those experimental years of the late 60s and early 70s for those three who were going through high school at that time and one who was in elementary school. And she was there for us. And I remember one morning, you know, being toilet papered in high school was a badge of honor. And no place toilet papered like Lewis and Clark High School in Spokane. I'm, I'm glad that Bud's not sitting here right now. But, um, but I swear, they used 100 rolls. And I walked out and, and I was overwhelmed and, with gratitude Let's just say my dad had a different response. (laughs) But it was my mom who walked out that way. And all she did was pat me on the back and say, you're very special, aren't you? (laughs) She got it. She got it. She understood her role throughout her life. she, She made breakfast for us every morning so that we could go out with something more than a granola bar. They didn't even have granola bars back then. And she packed some of the most special lunches and almost, in almost every one of those lunches was a note to tell us how special we were. 
She was our security blanket in the midst of the hurricane that was my father. And one of my great memories of her was up back to Magnolia for a second. And we, we've missed this so in so many places anymore. Um, every 4th of July, Magnolia had a community parade. And every float in that community parade was made by the kids of the city of Magnolia. And we had an incredible neighborhood group of kids, and we made some of the most unusual, that's such a good word, floats that you all remember. I still look back at the pictures of some of these floats, which my mom took, and still can't tell you whether it was a dragon or a donkey. (laughs) I know that I was wearing a big top hat that she'd made for me and a big bow that was about this big. And there she was on the sidelines, cheering us on as we walked that parade. There she was at every every JV football game, or when I threw in Little League my first no-hitter. And I will tell you, my dad has almost no memory of any of those things. My mom can go back and tell you every single one of them. She clearly understood her role in the midst of all that and lived it to the nth degree. She was, another word, the voice of encouragement. And as I look back on my life, It was much less my dad, and he's going to listen to this message. So, Dad, I just want to apologize ahead of time for all of this. But but he knows. I learned my faith from my mom. And she never talked about it. She lived it every day. I think of the four words of our mission statement now, growing in faith, love, health, and service. I learned how to love from my mom. I learned what it meant to be healthy even in the midst of her illnesses and her surgeries and all that took place in her life. I learned how to be healthy from my mom. And I truly learned what service was about from my mom. She was that constant voice, that constant influence in all of those areas. And then... Then I learned what it meant to be a professional from my mom. There came a point where she chose to go back to work in her life. My brother had entered middle school, and and she could still be there because where she worked was just down the road from the place that they lived. And, you know, when you've been out of the workforce for a long time, it's unusual to find the job that she found. She became assistant to the president at Evergreen State College, and the president at that time of Evergreen State College was Dan Evans, two-term governor, one-term senator, and mom became Dan's right-hand person. Would explore speeches with her as they're driving along. She became his driver, too, by the way. She drove his car, but he would talk about turning phrases, and it was my mom who helped him like she helped us along the way and I think in many ways saw Dan as one of her children. Can't wait to share that with Dan. (laughs) And she treated him very much like that. But she came that voice of encouragement, even more important than that. As Dad continued to occupy the spotlight and and became the national president, two-term national president of Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays, PFLAG, and sat across in places like Washington, D.C., from guys like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and argued the merits of of being open and accepting. 
It was my mom, friends, who got the phone calls. Phone calls from those parents who didn't know what to do with that kind of information, who didn't know where to turn because they didn't know how to handle a gay son or a lesbian daughter. It was my mom who got those phone calls. It was my mom who became literally the mother for thousands of young folks whose families had totally rejected them because they found that they were gay. And I mean thousands of phone calls. And she became that. So we had the privilege as her children of sharing the gift that is Betty Beeman with the world. And she changed lives and changed the world because of those decisions in those seven words. Choices, dedication, tradition, specific roles, encouragement, influence, and sharing. The reason I raise this today is not to just praise my mom. You heard a story, as Linda read, the story of this boy who was epileptic and whose epileptic seizures would throw him into the fire and at that point they saw that as demon possession. And disciples who just couldn't figure out what to do. And Jesus who confronted them about the fact that they weren't taking appropriate action with this child. What's amazing about that story is this child was healed. And healed because Jesus was willing to rebuke the cause, take the actions necessarily in order to bring, them, bring this child out of that, move both the child and the parent beyond what was seizing him into a life of health and healing. That's what my mom did. I think to a great extent from the day she was born, that was her call. And what I want to tell you today is there are a huge amount of things that are seizing our children today. A huge amount of things that are seizing our children today. Things like drug abuse, drug violence, things like other kinds of addictions, things like too much time sitting behind and looking at a television or texting things that are occupying their time that that just simply are not healthy. That's seizing our children. Things like now being diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and having no idea what to do with any of those things. That's seizing our children. And other mental illnesses are seizing our children and we're not sure what to do about them. So what do we do? Almost nothing. We live in an area of South Bellevue. This church occupies a place in South Bellevue. And I will tell you what I believe is seizing more children in this area than anything else. It's pressure. There is an immense amount of pressure in this community for our children to succeed. And what's adding to that pressure is that the demographic of this city has changed so dramatically that we're not sure any longer what to do to assist families that are moving into this area because they are of a different culture. I spent six hours yesterday with a phenomenal young man who has three children 
and he's Korean. And we talked about all of this. This community right now is 43% Asian. Japanese, Chinese, and Korean, but in the opposite order. 47% of Newport High School is Asian. Over 50% of Somerset Elementary is Asian. And the situations that they're dealing with are very different than the situations that we deal with in many of our families. And yet here they have come, and I will tell you, and it was confirmed for me yesterday, exactly how lonely many of those parents are. How they don't know what to do at this point because they don't know the customs of this country. What they do know is that they are absolutely, absolutely dedicated to their children. No matter what it takes, even if it took leaving dad in Korea and mom and children coming here to be able to take on the educational opportunities that we have here and know absolutely no one and have no community. You want to talk about being seized. And my, my question to us this morning is, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? What are we doing to help them? What are we doing even to get to know them? What are we doing beyond hiring Nick to reach out to those families whose children are struggling? And here's where my mom comes in. What I just identified for you and the way that she chose to live her life is exactly what I am now going to be looking for from this church. That we are going to take these on. And I'm not asking, friends. I'm telling. We are going to take these things on. I'm not going to apologize about it anymore. I'm not going to back off on it anymore. We are taking these things on. It began, to some extent, this morning across the hall. A breakfast that's going to help our youth. But providing breakfast isn't enough. It's not enough. Hiring a youth director is not enough. Feeding at Hammond House is not enough. And I want to take it one step farther. We need to open this church up, friends, to opportunities that are going to help enhance the lives of the children and the youth of this area. We need to open up this property we need to open it up because this is a God-given, incredibly beautiful place so that children and families can come by invitation from us to experience the beauty that is this place. And we need to begin to build relationships with the 47% of our preschool who are Asian. That's what we need to do. And it's not us taking something to them. It's building relationships because you know what? Relationships are what we are about. And creating opportunities to engage all children and all youth and introduce them to the love that is this place. I wish I could call this ministry Betty Beeman. She ingrained deeply within all four of her children the need to do this. And I have failed at that with this church. And I will not fail any longer. I have apologized. I have backed off. That's over. We're going to take these things on. And we're going to do it with energy and focus. And I will help. But no longer are we going to relegate to a staff 
the work that is the church. No longer. Like my mom, this church has the opportunity to change a community, to change lives, and even to change the world. It is our mandate. And let's not be the disciples in this story. Let's be the Jesus in this story. And let's take it on. Will you pray with me? God, I know some of these are hard words to hear. But it is a mandate we have to take on. It is our role. It is our responsibility. It is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And I ask, I ask that you help guide us, that you help motivate us. And it means that we invest, invest in this in lives that are just busy. There's nothing more important in this work. Nothing. You said, let the children come to me. Help us figure out what that means for us as a church. Guide us. All this in Christ's name. Amen.